0: Stories That Matter Studios, I'm Nance Haxton, and this is The Streets of Your Town, the Journo Project. This podcast is all about recognising great Australian journos, wherever they may be around the world. With the media in Australia under increasing attack and hard-won freedoms under threat, there's no better time to celebrate and highlight the work of the top journalists from down under. It took 10 years of research and writing through some of the toughest times in her life, but Jono Helen Pitt's determination was rewarded. She not only completed her book on the machinations of building the Sydney Opera House, simply called The House, but her work was also recognised with the 2018 Walkley Book Award. Helen is a long-time journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald, and credits the skills she learnt on the floor there with being able to see such a monumental project through to fruition. Her investigative skills revealed aspects of the making of the Opera House that had never come to light before and her incisive writing brings to life this era of Australian history in all its dramatic glory. I'm Helen Pitt and I'm a senior writer at the Sydney Morning Herald. Helen, thank you very much for coming and joining us at the Journo (laughs) Projects. Lovely to meet you. And here we are in the WA State Library. Uh, You've just done a big talk for the Walkley Foundation. It was really well attended. Tell us a bit about how how that was. Is it good to give back a bit now as a Walkley Award-winning author? Congratulations as well.
1: Thank you. One of the best things about writing a book is talking about it, because you don't have to write it anymore because it means it's
0: finished. And
1: um, you know, obviously it's such an honour to win the Walkley Award for the book because you know. The thing about um, being a journalist as opposed to being an author is being an author is a very long, lonely task. Very Whereas being in a newsroom is is collaborative and it's fun and you can talk through ideas and it's a bit noisy sometimes. You know, it, It's the exact opposite of what you need to be on a really big long-form journalism project or a long-form work of any kind of creative endeavour. So I love the fact that I can kind of talk about it all now because you learn so much about one particular subject and you can stay really focused on that subject, but sometimes it's good to just come out of that little closed off area mm-hmm. and and you know be back in the world for a little while. But so it really was a labor of love for 10, ten years, yes. Helen. Well, it wasn't all 10 years, mm. it was idea pitching in in 2008 to publication in 2018, but there was a lot of time in between that when I didn't do anything, that I just either was working or raising my son so it wasn't all that time but a lot of the time I was thinking about it so I actually really only properly signed the contract in 2016 but I had been been trying to be lured by the publisher for many many years so I just kept putting it off because I just didn't have the time or space in my life as working full time and all that sort of stuff. So. That's why it was a labour of love. And uh,
0: tribute to you, single mum as well, and I think it's great for all the single mums out there to know that you can do something Indeed. in the long yeah. term as well as raise your beautiful children. That's right, <laughs> and I think
1: that's a really important thing to have a, a little creative outlet too because it is it is different being an author to being a journalist. It's much more, uh, yes, yeah, it's creative. It's more you. It's more got a lot of freedom a lot of liberty in that you don't have in journalism and you can really have to look at it like a proper you know artistic endeavor with a beginning middle and end unlike a 400 word news story where you do the inverted pyramid and put the most important information at the top and leave the bottom to be possibly cut out cut by the subs that is not how it works and it's a proper structured creative project when you write a book and that's fun it's daunting but it's also why I kind of knew what the last sentence of my book would always be because I knew where I was going on the ultimate story is about Jornutsen the Danish designer who dreamt up this building on the other side of the world in a city he'd never been to but who died before seeing it complete and there was something that really struck me about that tragedy and so that's why I knew that that's where the end point was it was he died before seeing the building that the building that has become a brand more recognizable in australia that has a social asset value of 6.2 billion dollars that everyone pretty much in the world knows now thanks to him so there was at the heart of the story a big tragedy but i didn't know there were many other tragedies associated with it too until i put my head to it and kind of Put my head down and started researching and finding out
0: what. And was that a bit where the journalism skills came in? Because it sounded like it was quite an interplay there. Some of the journalism skills that you had, you had to put aside, like inverted pyramid, but other ones were really handy. Yes,
1: well, Mm. the researching element Mm. when you're doing a non-fiction narrative project are very helpful. When I started, I went to the State Library (laughs) in Sydney, New South Wales State Library, and I did a search on the titles of the word... Sydney Opera House the number of books that were already written and there was something like 279 and I was a little overwhelmed by that because I thought well, why would mine be any different you know the pitch to the publisher was telling retelling an old story to a new audience and I thought well how am I going to make this any different so I had to use my point of difference as the fact that I was a journalist. So it is completely a pay-in to the reporters of that era because I tracked down a lot of them, or I knew a lot of them actually. So all I did was look look and asked some of my mentors not all of them were in Sydney at the time but if they weren't they knew a lot of people who did so they put me in touch and that that really helped contextualize the story because one thing journalists are great at is putting something in the context of the time and the era and the place that it's in so they were really helpful one One was 91, he was the former state political roundsman at the Sydney Morning Herald, and he was a great deep throat. He knew everything, and he still had these great storytelling skills that could background me on a lot of stuff. Mm. Others were people that were associated with the Opera House that had either worked there, that wanted to tell their story many years after, but the reporters themselves were just so helpful, and it was a really joyous occasion at the book launch when a large number of them like Gavin Souter and Tony Stevens these were all my mentors that worked at the City Morning Herald for a long time that they came because I don't know I was really touched because they really helped me and it would be often I'd call up John O'Hara tragically died the day I handed my manuscript in. Oh, so, that is
0: so and his, I, can't
1: I know that. his family all came to the to the book oh, launch, but it was still so really lovely. really sad mm. um, because I'd ring him up and say, John, you know, can you tell me a bit about the day that your Nixon resigned? He said, like, I can't talk right now. The Caulfield Cups on, and you'd have to call. <laughs> He's like from a different era of journalism, really, when when you know you drank and you went to the racehorses and you did all this sort of stuff. So he. It was a different era of journalism and he was but he was so so helpful so what I really appreciated was reconnecting with my profession in its past and even for things like when Jornudsen won the international competition to design the Sydney Opera House mm-hmm. the Sydney Morning Herald reporter called him to tell him you know he didn't know that he hadn't they didn't know that he hadn't been told yet so even just it was called radio telephone it's kind of like it was shipped to shore kind of how How? did that how do you do that I didn't even know the mechanics so I I asked a former editor of the Sun Herald Peter Allen how do you do that and he could explain it to me in really basic terms so just even the mechanics of how you were a journalist in that era. uh, The the decision to build the Opera House began in 1957. The push for the Opera House began pretty much in 1954 when Queen Elizabeth II came to Australia for the first time. So really I had to track down as many people I knew in that era from that era to to retell it and even just working out who the person was that broke the story was really a bit of investigative journalism so I did become a bit like an investigative reporter into the past on that particular story so that's I used those skills definitely to try and track down. Sounds like it was
0: a bit of a love story to the Sydney Mm. Opera House but also to journalism I I remember Mm. reading that you were saying how impressed you were by these stories at the time that were done on Mm. butcher's paper on typewriters Mm. and things the accuracy. Absolutely. Um, you, 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 so you cross-check that. And, and
1: what that. was right. wonderful was I, again, my point of difference was I had access to these great old mm. newspaper files. So old journals will remember the library if they were newspaper reporters at The Australian, at The Herald, mm-hmm. at The Financial Review, wherever. They were these beautifully Manila folder-bound newspaper clipping files and I got the Herald, Sydney Morning Herald's Sydney Opera House files that went from the late 40s through to the present day and I read every one of them. And why that was really helpful in terms of I could have used Trove, you know that's very good, it's got the digital stuff, it's all there, but you could find out context on the newspaper files, like you could flip the other page and see that the weather was that Day, or who was in visiting town that day? Like there was a rock band, Bill Haley and the Comets, you know, is oh, visiting beautiful. one time. So, little inf- mm. pieces of information that were really great nuggets to add context again for this story. And again, it was just trying to look at something like the city I grew up in and reimagine what it was like in that time and retell it for an audience that had never known Sydney without the Sydney Opera House. So, it was opened in october 1973 so anyone born after that would have no memory of sydney without the opera house whereas i grew up with it with a bit of as a background to my childhood so i kind of knew a little bit about it i was eight when it opened so yes this is where your personal story my story yeah and that's kind of the kicking off point for the whole thing so the reason I wrote the book was I was living in California and I'd lived a lot of my adult life outside of Australia. So As a
0: journo over there?
1: Yes. Mm. I I worked the New York Times wine website mm-hmm. and in France for a TV station called Euronews. So I'd lived out of Australia for a long time mm. and... Usually about the only thing anyone ever knew about my hometown was the Sydney Opera House. So I became a bit of an expert. I was an exchange student in Sweden and I knew that I learnt. I didn't know until I got there. I learnt when I got there that that's where the tiles, white tiles from the Sydney Opera House came from. And and so, you know, I learnt a lot about it living outside of Australia, mm. weirdly enough. But then also when I came home, every time I flew in, I had this enormous, like, heart opening <laughs> of seeing the building and it wasn't the Sydney Opera House it was my Sydney Opera home I say I felt I was home always every time I saw that building and it really moved me I can't tell you if I feel any way about that about anything else in the city of my birth so I felt really connected to the story and I thought Wow, it's a lovely story. It's a beautiful building and I was driving across the Golden Gate Bridge 2008 the day that your knotsen died and his obituary was being read on the BBC World Service and as I heard mm. the unraveling of that tale that yeah, here he is. Died at 90, but he died without ever seeing the building complete. I thought, wow, that is such a sad story. Mm. How did he survive with such heartache like that? You know, it turns out quite well because he moved on. I mean, I think it was always a great tragedy. He said said always, many years later, that he had the building in his head like a composer has a symphony. So, yes, it was always his great creative project. There's no doubt about it. And I think he felt there was an enormous pride, part of his pride that was hurt when he had a big falling out with the New South Wales government and left in 1966. But he always imagined, I think, that he would come back if the ALP, state or federally won. But he never did. It turned out that he never did. So I did wonder how you would live with such heartache. And I thought that at that time, there's a great story. I wonder how many people really know that story, uh, my age and younger. And so that's when I pitched it to a publisher the month after. And, and did it
0: take all your journalistic persistence to get the his family to speak to you? It for did. The book? It did
1: <laughs> because they had been so badly, poorly of treated. Course.
0: They were the rock stars of their day. They it sounds kind like.
1: of were. They hounded like by paparazzi, Ooh. hounded by early early rock stars and they left with a pretty bad taste in their mouth i would have to say equally the hall family peter hall took on the project the architect mm. took on the project after utzon left and they'd had a pretty bad experience too so it well, was kind of died in obscurity really well he died without getting
0: credit for, without getting credit
1: for his mm. he died broke and alcoholic and he'd mm. lost both his wives and been estranged a bit from his family and died at 64 of a stroke and ironically in the same month that an exhibition called Unseen Utzon which were the original plans for the interiors of the building were unveiled so you know I think he died of a broken heart in many ways and I think his family would say that it's and I didn't really know that at the Mm. time and when I started it all I knew was there was the Utzon tragedy. I didn't know there was the Peter Hall tragedy really I, I mean I remember, I remember going there, being there on that day in 1973 as a kid on the harbour and being on a boat with my parents and seeing these big red ribbons hung from the Sydney Opera House and the Queen cutting the ribbons and this big bunch of birds known as the Big Flap all these pigeons that had been let loose on the day and <laughs> the balloons that got let loose 60,000 went straight out to the heads and I remembered all of the, the fanfare and I remember my parents saying well let's go inside let's see what it looks like and it was this reinforced concrete you know it's grey very brutalist inside and mm. my parents sort of scoffing at that, oh, all that money you know all it is is concrete <laughs> on the insides and they, there was always this feud in Sydney about if you're in the Utzon camp or the Hall camp kind of thing and Because Utzon had left without any real plans for the interiors, Peter Hall had to kind of make it up as he went along. And I think he did a great job. I I love the building, both the inside and the out. It doesn't bother me, but many people feel it's an inferior interior. I don't share that view Mm, and mm. I think I've got to know both families the Utsons and the Halls and I have a very strong soft spot for them both and I think they were both in very difficult situations and as the Halls have said to me very often we would have been great friends you know but their families were very similar in fact Peter Hall on a European trip went with his first wife and tried to get a job in Utson's office in Denmark so they they were very well known to each other Mm. so that's another layering of the tragedy. As I said, there were so many tragedies associated with this book. It's remarkable that no one died in the making of the building. I can't believe it, but that's the Considering case. Considering how innovative
0: all the yeah, skills and how were that they used to build it, yeah. how
1: difficult it was to build. You know, it was never been done before, and they had to dream up ways to make it work. engineering-wise to make it work, and that was really really tricky. And that's why it's just not just a feat of engineering, but it's a feat of political will that it actually happened to, because it was a vastly unpopular idea when they had the 1956 international competition the winner was announced and it was such a bold picture there on the front page of all the newspapers that I think a lot of people thought that is never going to be built. It's like whoa, you know, they've never seen anything like it. It was like the reaction in the paper on that day was hilarious. It's like a like a row of nuns and a bunch of upturned, upended Viking ships of hay bales and the New South Wales W H A L E. You know, it was completely derided from the very beginning. And I think I think even Joe Carl, who kind of was the political godfather of the whole story, I think in some parts he thought maybe it wouldn't get through to as as committed as he was to the building. He actually. He took the idea back to the rank and file rather than his caucus mm. to get it funded. So he knew it was going to be tricky. So it was it was kind of interesting and that's why it was great talking to John O'Hara who was the state political roundsman for 20 years at the Herald Mm. who covered all of this. And he could, again, give me context of what that ALP meeting was like when this woman got up and stood up and convinced the men of the ALP why they should fund the Opera House.
0: And now for it to be so embraced around the world, like you say, you know, to to have that struggle to actually come to be. Indeed. And And not only...
1: Everyone Mm. loves it. And I, I had that learning... Last year, when Mm. the Racing New South Wales attempted to project onto the sales of the Opera House an advertisement for the Everest horse race. And it's interesting because it happened this year again, but Mm -hmm. on the Sydney Harbour Bridge, people weren't as upset about that. Like there was a 300,000 word name protest. There were thousands, sorry, that that was the. the the signatures to to stop it. There were thousands of people at the protest. It was a real eye-opener for me because, I mean, I knew I loved the Sydney Opera House. I didn't know quite how much that feeling was shared. By many Sydney signers and Australians in general, actually people all around the world. You know, mm. nine million people a year visit it, so
0: it's pretty beloved. And does that go back a bit to the lottery? Do you think? I mean, I know it's kind of historic, mm. but is there? I wonder if there's an ongoing. I think. I think that, that. explains why Sydney Sydneys love it. Mm. So. Mm.
1: What happened was after this woman, Miss N Napa, convinced the blokey guys of the ALP Black Rooms to, to fund it, yeah. they agreed to do that via a state lottery. So the Sydney Opera House was born, mm. uh, Opera House lottery was born in 1957. The first one was drawn in January 1958. And you would be hard pressed to find a Sydney starter of that era, maybe an Australian even, that hadn't bought a lottery ticket. And you could become rich quickly on it. You know, that you won £100,000. That was a fortune in that time. And it led to one of the greatest tragedies associated with the building of the Opera House, the Graham Thorne kidnapping, which was the first kidnapping for ransom case in 1960 in Australia, ever. And any... He was an eight-year-old boy whose father won the Opera House Lottery and everyone saw this on the front page of the tabloids and... A man called Stephen Brad- Bradley picked him up on the way to school, took him to Centennial Park. For some reason a scuffle and he died. I don't believe he was meant to be killed. And the tragedy was, you know, he was asking for money. The family would have given it to him, you know, but the kid died and it was just one of the greatest tragedies associated with the building. So it also led to every lottery in Australia then having the option to tick not for publication thereafter because Mm. the media scrum to advertise the winner led to lots of people turning up on their doorstep asking for money so that stopped thereafter so again the Graham Thorn case was another tragedy I mean I knew about that I'd grown up hearing that story so it was a tragedy I associated with the building but there were many others that I didn't know about like Eugene Goosen's the man who was the mm. conductor of the Sydney Symphony Orchestra who was the mastermind there was a pornography scandal that led him to leave the country in 1955 and never come back so he was the first sort of victim of the small minds of Australia at that time and you know look honestly it was not really that racy the pornography was brought in you wouldn't think so today, but back then it was enough to get him kicked out of the country. Such countries. a
0: story of its time, I suppose. But it is interesting because people do just love it so much now and to hear that context. But And are you enjoying being back in Sydney now, being based in Sydney, being yeah. a journalist again after all yeah. that time overseas? Yeah,
1: and also I was an editor for a long time mm. and I love being back writing because the, the great fun part about being a journalist is getting out and interviewing people and that is such a gift that even 33 years from when I began is still the best part you know you're getting out and talking to people and you know you can make anything into a story I think you know it's the thing I I think you know there's the standard news leads of the day that you can write for a newspaper but for me the stories that have power and resonance and actually have a lasting impact are the ones when you write about people or when you have a bit of an art heart opening about and I just think they are stories, the human interest stories that deserve to be kept telling, which is kind of what this is the book is a massive human interest story, um, it's about two families, it's a bit Shakespearean it's not just about the 17 years it took to build it and the four premiers, and the two architects and the 10,000 people it took to build it it's, it's many things, it's a socio-political look at the era and how we got this extraordinary building and it would never happen today for many reasons. The actual Fort Macquarie that was there was the tram turnaround on Benelong Point before the Opera House was built. Well you probably today would never get permission to knock that down for a start and then you may not have the political will to push forward on that and then you may not have had someone that had the courage to just do it either that or you know someone like and that was willing to take a risk on this little country at the end of the earth that he'd never been to but was going to give him a chance so it couldn't quite
0: possibly have happened today and I'm equally intrigued I think today Helen that you've had a story written about Instagram poets mm, so you've mm, gone from this great historical mm. you know time to um to, to I mean and is that the life of a journalist that it you is. can just walk it that is. path and you never know where the next story is going to come I suppose. well I think it is and that's what makes it interesting mm. I mean you
1: can be around so I've done rounds yes you know I've done um political rounds, I've done religious affairs round, I've worked at a financial newspaper, and I have done work at Australian Doctor Medical Reporting, and I I find, you know, it's very helpful to have a specialty, definitely, but I still find it's so much more interesting to have no round, a general round. Yes. <laughs> I, the general beat. It's still, it's still fascinating mm. for me because you can just follow your instincts and say, mm-hmm. "Oh, that's so interesting." And the way I discovered that idea was I was noticing a lot of the younger girls in the office, you know, in their twenties, were liking this Instapoet by the name of Rupi Kaur, and I thought, "There's something in this." You know, why, why do they love her so much? What does she represent? And I think she's a millennial. That's really harnessed the way that age group communicate, yeah. i.e., Instagram. Mm. But She's also parlayed that into good old traditional publishing success with the books, you know, that it was the... One of her books was the best-selling book of the Sydney Writers' Festival. She's sold seven million copies of two volumes of poetry. I I mean, who thought, who would have known that poetry could have a renaissance? But it is. Yes, poetry is not dead. Same with radio. Yes, it's true. Mm, Look at us. real renaissance.
0: Podcasting
1: (laughs) and the internet have caused these renaissances of both art forms.
0: Yeah, and that communicative tool, just having to embrace whatever tools you're given. Indeed, Mm. indeed. And it's great. It's, It's really an
1: interesting way of shaking up, you know, what everyone thought was a dead mm. genre, i.e. poetry, thanks to Instagram, really.
0: Did you know, you were, or did you always know you were going to be a journalist, Helen?
1: No, I didn't. Mm. I actually was more interested in uh, languages. I studied French at school, and I wanted to become a diplomat or join the Foreign Affairs or whatever, but what happened was I was the editor of my school, high school newspaper mm-hmm. and it was a, a suburb of Sydney called Parramatta and the newspaper was called Paramatters and um, we entered it in the Sydney Morning Herald school, High School newspaper competition and the year I was in year 10, we won it, and a guy in the year above me at school got offered a cadetship in journalism, and then we entered again the next year and we won, and I got offered a cadetship in journalism. So I was 16, and so I hadn't really... I hadn't even finished school, so I was really blessed in lots of ways because the decision was made for me about what to do. I did end up going up, off to university. I went to college in Bathurst, where a lot of journalists were going at the time, and ended up being a great... Place to make my lifelong friends, and I'm really glad that I did that. But obviously, I learned so much more in my first year on the job as a journalist than I could ever learn in three years of university. I'm really glad I did that because, as I said, they were, it was a great living away experience. And and my my colleagues from that era are doing interesting things still in journalism. So some have gone to PR, I've done all sorts of things. So they still end up being my best
0: network. So. It was a useful tool to, to have done. I'm glad I did it. So looking back now, I suppose it's interesting we were talking about the death of poetry being a mm. bit... Uh, a, we, that's not the case at all. What about the death of journalism? That's a, yes. There's a lot of talk about that it's too. A, it sounds like the reports of it
1: are grossly exaggerated. Do you think? Well, you have we hope? just heard there today mm. Oliver... Gordon, one of the young journalists who studied at RMIT, is now with the ABC, his lecturer at RMIT said there are now more jobs than we have graduates to put in, which I find quite remarkable because in the last decade I'd have been sort of like slowly pushing people away from it, but I can see like the growth um, Mm. of maybe not your traditional cadetship at a newspaper or traditional cadetship at a media organisation, but there's so many vehicles that Mm. you can... Or paths you can go down as a young journalist that n- they're not just media and comms you know it's the saying there's just different things to do within big old media organizations and it's, it's I can see I can see people entering it and they have such good technical skills now too they're not necessarily just writers or reporters they can make podcasts they can be VJs video journalists they, they can do all sorts of things so it seems today I've learned one of the things is it's I've got a lot of I've got a lot of hope for the profession and I think, you know, in this era of raids by the AFP, Mm. we're hoping with this Shining a Light push, um, Shining a Light on the truth, that people will start to see that what we do has value. I think there's been a bit of sullying of our reputation definitely in this Mm. era of social media and the claim that things are fake news, which I I think it's been the the dearth on our profession in a sense. So I am really heartened to hear that people are joining more traditional, taking more traditional paths back to the job. As we were discussing today, you've got to remember whenever you're on social media that it's still publishing you still you know this mixture of your professional and personal self it's a little dangerous i would be hesitating i would be urging people off a lot of social media and back to to regain some sort of important idea in the public's mind about the role that we play i would really encourage a lot of young people to not put their own views on Twitter, and because that cut, sullies you in a sense, it means you're not you're playing your card in a way, you're showing your hand. So I think it really is the whole. I art of remaining as impartial as you possibly can needs to be rethought a and lot it's of.
0: still so crucial you think so central to what we do
1: I think yeah mm. I mean of course you come with your own political persuasions and they're informed mm. by your past but I think you owe it to your subject to tell both sides of the story like I, even in my book there are two families involved there's a political two different political parties there's lots of sides to a complex story that's in the past but you've got to try and Be as even-handed as you can on everything that you approach as a journalist, but particularly on a long-form piece of journalism, you owe it to your reader to be as fair. and And this is where a good editor or publisher can really help you, because occasionally I would get off and get a bit. Go down a particular path and think, oh, this is great. This is really. I've like, told me all about this. And thinking, oh, pull yourself back in because you can't be taking sides. An interesting mm-hmm. thing about the whole writing of the book was I did try not to take sides, and then when this thing happened with the projections of mm. the Everest race jockey spots on the opera house, mm-hmm. my editor said, "You've got to take a position," and I thought, "Yeah, all right, I'm going to say uh, I think it's." Not good. Not a good idea. So this is a beloved building, and yes, it was bought with the proceeds of gambling. I get that, and it's hypocritical to say we shouldn't be encouraging yeah. people to gamble when the whole building was built with lottery tickets. But you know, given that we are a nation with one of the highest gambling problems in the world, I just thought the whole ethics of the thing. And particularly given that there are guidelines for UNESCO buildings that say you cannot project letters or numbers onto it. And they overruled them completely. The New South Wales government completely overruled the CEO of the Opera House. So that was interesting in that I was kind of forced to take a position on that. And that's good. That's what mm. opinion writing should be. But when you're writing a book, you know, you've got to think of this is not just a quick-hit opinion piece that's going to be in the paper tomorrow. This has got to have long-lasting impact so you've got to really think through how you drive that narrative and you've got to keep going back to the narrative arc of the book and sometimes stuff's superfluous so you have to approach a long-form journalism project like it's a river and sometimes you go off down a little bit of a tributary you might be (laughs) the wrong tributary but you can turn your kayak back and go down the river again and that's There's never a waste, but sometimes you do, like, think, oh, why'd I go down there? I don't know, it was a complete rabbit warren. I don't know how I got there. Like, I got really obsessed on one story. Um, Winifred Atwell Atwell was this piano player who was the second person to perform at the Opera House while it was still being built. First woman. And I just got really... Taken by her story, and she lived in this high-rise apartment in Coleroy in the Northern Beaches, and I was like, "Oh, this is great." And thinking, "Hang on, hang on, this is not about the opera, I just got really <laughs> sidelined by her life story, and sometimes you do that, you know, and you just kind of completely go yeah. down a row hole because it's it's fascinating, especially if you're obsessed with a story. You're like, "Oh God, I didn't know that," you know. <laughs> so that can be a danger when you're doing a long-form thing, but nothing's ever a waste of time.
0: Sounds like journalism was the perfect cadetship in a way to becoming that long-form author it was
1: Mm. in some ways you know I feel like you are a sprinter when you're a daily journalist and then this is like you have to learn to become a marathon runner so they're different skills you use different muscles and both can be helpful You know, one can inform the other, but, like, it's a really... You've got to take a really long-term view when you're doing a big, long-form project. And I'd say that for anyone as a journalist. Like, you've just got to be really committed and compelled. And most importantly, you need to love the idea. Mm -hmm. The idea is crucial. As I said, I have a love of the Sydney Opera House. But when you choose a long-form project, you really have to think of it as, like, choosing a spouse because... (laughs) you have to live with this idea every day for a long time and so you mightn't always love it you mightn't always like it even but you have to live with it you know you just have to stick it out and be really committed to telling a compelling tale and that is easier said than done.
0: Well, if I could just finish on, you touched on it before, the AFP raids, I've asked everyone mm. who's been on the Journal mm. Project, and here we are at a Walkley Foundation mm. do, of course, here in Perth. Are you concerned about the implications of that on press freedom? And, mm. and we've touched on maybe getting people's faith back in journalism, mm. is that a key part of it?
1: Yeah, it is. I think it's worrying. In the early 90s, I took part in a journalism program called Journalists in Europe. It was based in Paris. It was a year-long scholarship where they brought young journalists from all around the world, aged between 25 and 35, to study for a year. And it was a foundation that was set up by... men who founded Le Monde, Hubert Berve-Marie and Philippe Vianney, and they had been resistance fighters and they helped set up the independent press, which was Le Monde in France, and they had wanted this to be an example for everyone in the world, that the importance of an independent press that's not an arm of the government, because they're... Their idea was that World War II wouldn't have gone on for as long or uh, wouldn't have been as destructive if there had been independent press that, in each nation that had truly questioned the government on every move, you know, because there were so many, like, especially in France where there was a but where, where it was German occupation and the newspapers were collaborators with that government, that this was a dangerous precedent they thought for human rights the world over so they set up this foundation and we were all young and passionate and i really felt the fire burning in my belly about the need for independent journalism in that era and i felt that not die within me but i felt the public's response to that, considering it's not very important. We've seen a bit of the death of journalism yes. in a lot of ways, you know, we've seen so increasingly shrinking newspapers, we've seen so many of my colleagues, my peers pretty much have all gone from the newspaper world, either by redundancy or needing to find other careers. And I've felt a bit despondent in the last few years because I honestly thought that was bad enough and now you've got the police raiding <laughs> and trying to get our sources. And I felt this was a really dangerous era that we're living through as journalists. But I don't. I feel a little heartened when I hear that today there are, are way more jobs. I think this press freedom campaign we've got going on at the mm. moment has been very powerful mm. i see people asking me more about like well, how, how does it impact you and mm-hmm. because you know because and, yeah. partly uh, you know we did this session yesterday on freedom of information and you know the governments are trying desperately to try and not let you know anything mm-hmm. so much so i look at a story like the opera house Freedom of Information Acts didn't exist, when that was and I got documents from at the time. I mean, they make your hair curl cool because they are just so completely corrupt. I mean, the the Askin government that were the ones that kicked Yornotson out. They, in hindsight, were one of the most, were the most corrupt governments New South Wales has ever had. Mm. And In fact, the day he died, our paper published a whole load of allegations because our defamation laws had prevented them from being published before that. So, I mean, it's always been important, press freedom, but it seems more so because we've had a little bit of, I think, things like Google, Twitter, say, Facebook, they've they've also been brought down a bit, a few notches, fortunately, I think, because they've had so much power. A, we know so many of them don't pay taxes, which is, again, just an immoral el- element to their whole... Being, mm. But, you know, the Cambridge Analytica stuff, the roles that they've played in elections, of course they're partisan. And this is why a non-partisan press is so important because we don't mm. push a particular government's line. We don't push a particular political party's line. And it's so important to equate press freedom with personal freedom what kind of country do you want to live in australia if you're not paying attention to what your press is able to report so i feel a little more hopeful in the last few weeks because i can see a response like it's been very supportive that like people asking me about the front pages like people that i don't think would have even read the herald that much but they could see that the australian did it the Telegraph did it a questioning the Korean mail did it, every paper. And then, you know, reports in the on the TV and the radio. It was a really emboldened campaign by us all coming together to say enough is enough. So I am an optimist and I always think that the role we play is really, really important, long form or short form too. It is to always question and be allowed to use the tools that we have at our hands to question governments in particular because perfectly frankly a lot are really corrupt especially at local council levels all the way up so we have a democratic right to do our job and i think we're finally getting a bit of momentum in the community recognize that importance Mm. and and, to support that to support it I really Mm. I'm getting a good feeling about it now and that's one of the great things about winning a Walkley. you know you end up going around talking to people kind of all over the country about it and even just that very fact that you've been recognized as best in your craft people pay and look at you differently and so you do have this springboard in which you can jump into conversations with people that you may not have ever talked to about your profession and and that's a great thing you know we're so we're so fortunate to have this job that because it gives us such access to extraordinarily interesting people but also people that are maybe not doing the right thing by us as citizens and that's where we've got to be brave and just like question them constantly. Keep them accountable. Make sure, keep those bastards
0: honest. <laughs> well, I think that's a beautiful place to finish. Thank you so much for joining us on the JoNO Project, Helen. Thanks so much, Nat. It's lovely to meet you. That was Helen Pitt, author of Walkley Award-winning book The House, speaking to me from the State Library in Perth for the JoNO Project.